It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Subscribe to the Astros Podcast. Joined by Justin Verlander getting the ball on opening day. Steve Sparks here, and I'm with Lance McCullers. Tons of interviews. Robert Ford joined by Michael Brantley. Alex Bregman. Carlos Correa returning to the lineup today. Highlights. That is lined in the right field, and that's going to get down for a base hit. High deep, and it's gone. A grand slam. Follow your favorite team. Subscribe to the Astros podcast. We definitely love playing in front of our fans in Minute Maid Park. For the H. They never said it would be easy. This is the Houston Astros Radio Network. Back to Astropod, the official podcast of the Houston Astros. Well, another edition of the Astros podcast with Robert Ford and Steve Sparks. Certainly hope everybody is is staying safe out there with with the quarantine and everything that that's going on in Houston and of course uh, around the country and uh Steve I, I love these these podcasts we get some great guests and I get a chance to catch up with you. I miss I miss my radio wife. I know <laughs> your radio wife. Um, yeah, it's not the same right now. It feels like we should be together uh, on an everyday basis and I do miss that a, a lot. Not not just the fact that uh, that we don't get to watch a game that we love and work and do what we love to do, but just to, to hang out. You know, it's those moments off air that we go back and laugh about so often. Um, but uh, I'm optimistic. I, I think we're going to be doing this uh, sooner rather than later. So uh, hopefully uh, it'll bring a, a diversion, you know, with, with as heavy as all the social issues are now uh in America, man, we certainly need a little bit of a diversion from time to time. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, and you know, you talk about everything that that's been going on. Obviously, the the protests and and, and all that. Um, I think it's a you know, if there's anything good that's come out of everything that's going on, is because so many people are spending so much time at home with their families. Uh, I think this has been a time with that's led to a lot of families having you know, conversations about a lot of these issues that, you know, I think for a lot of people may not have been uh, aware of how prominent they were in, in the black community and other communities. Yeah. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that, you know, even as a player is I've heard some things and uh, read articles and listened to podcasts hearing uh, some of my former teammates, you know, realize that it was kind of a four versus 21 type of situation in clubhouses. A lot of times, for some of the African-American players, uh, just because they would look at, at each other just saying, can you believe that just happened? And and for myself uh, to be oblivious to that, uh, I'm kind of ashamed. And a lot of the conversations that uh, we've had about these situations have usually yeah. been uh, maybe myself uh, having conversations with with uh, one, of the, one of my teammates that, that were going through that rather than it just being a, a bunch of people that maybe uh, were more like me having these conversations. So I'm encouraged right now that uh, that there's a lot more uh, pockets of conversation where a, a lot of people uh, are hopefully more aware of, of what's going on. And, and you and I have talked about, we feel like uh, the, the next generation is more accepting and loving. And uh, I think, uh, Hopefully that everybody should feel like they're they're being treated like equals. I mean, it just seems so so elementary, but uh, just it's profound in a way, and it's it's embarrassing that uh, I wasn't I wasn't aware as I should have been. You know, and it's you know you bring up a good point, and you know I'll I'll just say this, you know, being African American, you know, a lot of these stories, a lot of the things people are talking about, I am either personally familiar with or only have friends or family who have dealt with similar issues and, and dealt with some of the growing things. up too, right? Right. Yeah. Um, about how careful you had to be with, mm -hmm. with any sort of interaction with, with law enforcement. But, you know, one thing that's been interesting to me is, 
you know, and I have, you know, friends of all sorts of different, sure. you know, races and, and, and colors and all of that. And, you know, I've had a few of my friends who aren't black ask me, you know, what things I've experienced and, and things that, I, that I've gone through. And, you know, the question I've gotten is, well, how come you didn't talk about this stuff? Like, tell us about this stuff before. And I think it's a reasonable question. And I think the reason that myself and a lot of other you know, African-Americans don't necessarily talk about these things um, outside of their own communities is because I think one, you know, there's a there's a there's a belief that maybe other people won't be able to understand. But I think also what what is a big factor is, you know, you don't always want to feel like this is something you always have to talk about. You know, every time something happens, you don't want to feel like you something happens to you. You don't want to feel like an issue. Exactly. So I think it's, you know, it's a couple of things that are in play. And I do think and I hope because we've seen a lot of people, whether they've been famous or not famous, who have expressed, who have talked about some of the things that they've experienced, uh, you know, being black in, in America with law enforcement and with others and how it's affected them. And I really hope that we have more of those dialogues now, not just within the black community, but also um, outside of outside of the black community as well. I've heard uh, I've heard players talk about how good of an example Jackie Robinson was and how he made it better for the next generation. So a lot of the players felt like they, they needed to do the same thing. And I'm thinking now, I wonder, I wonder if it's going to be a little different. What do you think? I hope so. I, I do hope so. Um, you know, you always worry about whether, you know, it's something that, you know, in a few weeks, everybody forgets about. Um, I tend to believe that won't be likely in this instance. Um, but uh, yeah, you hope that the engagement, the dialogue, the conversations, um, they that they continue, uh, even after, uh, you know, maybe the the initial fervor kind of dies down that these, you know, we still work to, to try and, and fix some of these issues. And, and like you said, Steve, just get try and get closer to a point where, you know, everybody is, is treated equally. That's right. You know, and everybody's got a part in this. And when you're talking about not letting it die, we all have a part in, in keeping this uh, uh, in the front burner and making sure that uh, things like this don't occur uh, like they have been. It's time for everything like this to stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're pleased this week uh, on this podcast to be joined by a big fan favorite uh, Astros third base coach, uh, Gary Pettis joining us now. It's been a while since we, we've seen you and seen anybody really with the Astros. What have Gary Pettis's days look like over the last several weeks? Well, it's been a lot of time spent in the home, uh, sometimes out in the backyard. Um, I've actually spent a lot of time uh, firing up the grill. So I've, I've cooked a lot on the grill since uh, I've been home and just enjoying the family, playing a bunch of uh, card games, board games, anything that we can do to uh, keep ourselves entertained. What, what are you cooking on the grill? Have you picked up anything new? Oh, uh, just the usual suspects, chicken, ribs, steak, <laughs> things like that. Not bad, not bad. What was it like in spring training? I mean, you guys were just there for a few weeks, but uh, with the new regime and, and Dusty, you got to know him probably on a much closer uh, basis. Uh, what was that like? Well, I mean, I had some... Uh, interactions with Dusty over the years. Um, I've known him a long time. And so for me, it was just being able to see him more on a regular basis, which was very enjoyable. Got a chance to talk with him a little bit more often. And so um, the transition for me was probably easier than probably for some of the other guys on the staff. But I, overall, I think it, it was going in the right direction. Gary, as far as uh, keeping in touch with your outfielders, I know your group and the guys that you coach uh, have become very close through the years. Have you been keeping in touch with Springer and Brantley and Reddick and those guys? Well, I, I've reached out to some of them. Um, I've tried to just give them their space, uh, time to be with their families. And, and uh, we get weekly reports from uh, Jeremiah and also from uh, Vern. And so I'm, I'm kept up to date as far as what they're doing. Um, I know it's a tough time for everyone, and um, I, I don't want to – infringe too much on their on their time especially in wake of what's going on right now with the COVID-19 and everything so I, I just want to give them some time but I do uh, trust them to 
take care of what it is that they need to take care of to be ready in case we do start playing again. You talk about what a difficult time this is right now, Gary, and obviously with with the pandemic, that's that's a big part of it. But also, you know, lately with the the protests that we've seen after you know the incident with George Floyd getting killed by by the police um, and other things that have been been happening, and it seems like the buildup of a of a lot of things that have that have been going on. How have you and your family just been kind of handling just all the images that we've seen on television and on the internet over the last week or two or so with the protests and, and some of the other things that are that are going on? Well, I think it's just a, a case where people have had enough of seeing uh, police brutality and, uh, you know, to, for me personally, to have uh, seen some of these things up close as a kid growing up uh, to even think that it's still happening now, uh, it's 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 mind blowing. Uh, but to see all of the people come together and try to make a change, uh, it's it's very powerful. My my kids, uh, we've had a lot of conversation about uh, the direction that we hope this thing goes, and and we all, we've also talked about a lot of the things that have happened in the past that are still going on, and so we just hope that. Uh, somehow uh, we can come to a point where uh, we we don't have to continually be worried about what's going to happen to us if you are pulled over by the uh, by the police. Are you encouraged, Gary, at, at all about some of the new questions that have arisen, or just because the converse, conversations are more in depth now? I, I think so. I, I think it's you know when you when you see all the the different colors of people out there participating, I, I think that's trending in the right direction. Uh, you know, it's not just the African-American people that are trying to say we've had enough, but it looks like uh, the majority of the country is fed up with it as well. Growing up in o Oakland, uh, Gary, I, I love listening to your stories about the, the group of, of guys you grew up with uh, and played sports with. Can you tell Tell us a couple of stories about who you played with and what they ended up doing and, and maybe even some of the positions some of those players played when they were little and what they turned out to be. <laughs> yeah. So uh, growing up in Oakland, you know, baseball was a, a pretty big uh, sport for the for the young kids. And so uh, Little League Baseball, uh, Lloyd Mosby and I were teammates. And we obviously, as we got a little bit older, we started to play against uh, other guys from around the neighborhood. And so it was Lloyd and myself, Ricky Henderson and Dave Stewart, you know, so we were all on different teams with the exception of Lloyd and myself. And Lloyd Mosby was a uh, first baseman catcher who went on to play the outfield uh, for the Toronto Blue Jays. And then Ricky Henderson uh, at the time, he was a first baseman, <laughs> who we all know what he went on to become. <laughs> and then Dave, Dave Stewart was a catcher and who turned out to be a really good pitcher. And so, you know, the stories are endless. I mean, we would we would have games where Dave Stewart would be the catcher and we'd get in a tough situation, maybe in the seventh or eighth inning. <laughs> and our manager would bring another guy off the bench and he would go to the mound dave stewart would go to the mound fill off his shin guards right there on the mound give them to the guy <laughs> that was coming in to catch and then he would finish the game out for us so it, we we had some some great times uh we got to high school and we all played against one another we, we we didn't go to the same high school but we all played against one another and then once we finished our senior season uh, we all were able to play with one another again on a baseball team. Uh, it was a county Mac team. It was 18, 18 years old. And uh, we had a, we had a very good, very good run. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that county Mac team uh, that, that you were on with, with you know, Dave Stewart, Lloyd Mosby and, and Ricky Henderson. And you guys, I remember you telling me you guys had a shot at, at winning the, the tournament, but then something happened, right? Yes, yeah, so we uh, we were looks like we were headed to the County Mac World Series. I believe it was in New Mexico at the time, and so we had uh, gone down to Los Angeles and we played at Jackie Robinson Ballpark. And so we win we win Friday, 
we win Saturday, and all we have to do now is win one game, and we're going to the to the World Series. And on Saturday night, we had all gone out for, you know, just we were from Oakland. We were in L.A., so we all went out that night trying to find something to do. But we also knew that we had a curfew, and so we all made it back for curfew. And the next morning, we get up, <laughs> and we go to the ballpark, and we don't see Ricky. Well, now, we all knew that we were out with him the night before, so no one wanted to say anything. But we're all sitting around looking at one another like, where is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> we can't figure out what's going on. And then finally, our manager says, hey, guys, uh, I just want to let you guys know that Ricky won't be playing with us. He was signed by the Oakland A's either late last night or early this morning. I can't remember which one it was. but So we lose Ricky Henderson, and then – we go on to lose two games and got knocked out of the out of the tournament. So, uh, needless to say, way back then he was still a, a pivotal cog in a in a baseball team. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned all the different positions all those guys played compared to where they played once uh, they were in the major leagues. You, of course, were an outfielder, center fielder mostly in in the major leagues. What position were you playing at that time, and when did you move to the outfield? So at that time, I was playing third base, <laughs> a little bit of shortstop, and I played in the in the outfield. Wow. Um, and then once I signed with the Angels, my first day uh, in rookie ball, they were asking the infielders to all go to their position at shortstop, and they asked all the outfielders to go to their position out in center field. So I grabbed my glove, and I started running the center field, and... <laughs> the manager says, Hey, Gary says, no, you are going to go over here with the shortstops. I'm like, really? I'm going where? Yeah. So they, they send me over to play with the, with the infielders. But now I have an outfield glove. So when it came my turn to attempt to field a ground ball, I had to borrow someone's glove because I didn't have one. So I started that process. And so for about, Oh, a year and a half, I played third base, shortstop, and second base. And I desperately wanted to play the outfield because I knew I could. And just so happened that one day uh, we had a player that was injured and we had another guy that was sick and he couldn't play. And the manager says, hey, can anybody play the outfield? <laughs> and, of course, I threw my hand up right away. I said, yes, I can do it. And so I'm sure they probably didn't really believe it. And I guess at that time, you know, at that level, they just stick the guy that they think isn't going to be pretty good out there in right field, hoping that maybe nothing goes to him. <laughs> it's kind of like when you're a little kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I go to right field and there's a ball hit into the right center field gap, but probably more towards the center fielder than the right fielder which is where I was but I had such a great jump on it that I ran and I ran past the center fielder and I caught the ball well <laughs> everyone everyone seemed shocked but me that I could do that and then the next day they said hey well you know what let's let's see if you can play center field and I'm thinking to myself oh yes I can play center field <laughs> and so if it hadn't have been yeah if it hadn't have been for an injury and someone getting sick who knows if I would have ever gotten a chance to go back to play the position that I always knew I could. Hey, Gary, with five gold gloves, I'm interested to know, uh, as a teacher now of the outfielders, what do outfielders typically do wrong in regards to their routes? Well, I think it starts even before their route. I think one of the, the common mistakes is just not being ready on time. And so when that happens, you you, your body tells you that you're late. So now you panic and you have to do something. So in most cases, a guy, when he's late, he's just going to try and turn and go get the ball wherever it is. And so the, the direction of the route suffers because of that, because he feels like he's, he's in a, in a panicked position to where now I just, I just have to go somewhere. The ball is already traveling. It's just, just like hitting or pitching. Everything has to sync up. And if something's off, 
then you, you may see like a late break and some guys have the speed to make up for it and some don't, but the, the, the key is to be on time when the ball's in the hitting zone. So you give yourself the best opportunity, you know, talking about, about outfield play and coaching outfielders, um, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the, the routes and on all the, all the pre setup. And I'd have to think that's gotten even uh, more complex over the years, maybe not more complex, but more detailed because now with all the, the, the shifting and everything and, and moving outfielders around, how much has that changed kind of how outfielders can prepare before the ball is hit to them? Well, and, and that's one of the things that uh, you have to really pay attention to. Um, you have to study the team that you're playing. Uh, myself, having the luxury of being in the American League West for 14 years now or so, I've, I've seen just about everybody <laughs> on each team. Uh, so I have a pretty good idea of, you know, their tendencies and where they're most likely going to hit the ball. But we still do our homework. We have videos. We have scouting reports. And so that's also related to the players. Uh, they can go watch it themselves. And so going into the game, we have an idea of where a guy is most likely going to hit the ball. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but we do have an idea. And then when you couple that with the fact that uh, we expect and trust that our guys are going to be ready and get the good jumps on the baseball, uh, it it makes it really easy to to play out there, especially with the type of guys that we have. And when you talk about uh... – you know all the all the resources you you have now. Obviously, a lot of those resources weren't as readily available. And some of them weren't available at all when when you were playing in the in the 1980s and, and 1990s. What were some of the things you would do to uh, help yourself with with knowing the hitters? Was it just a matter of of experience and and and, and asking other guys who maybe had a little more experience than you when you first started? Well, you see, when I when I came to the major leagues, I played with an outfield of uh, Brian Downing, Freddie Lynn, and there would be times where Reggie Jackson would be out there or maybe George Hendricks. So um, they knew the hitters better than I did. I still had to do my homework. I would sit in on the pitchers meetings. Um, I would listen to how they were uh, going to attempt to pitch the batter. And I also um, had an understanding of what type of hitter it was. Is it a guy that likes to hit the ball to the opposite field? Is he a pull hitter? Is he a gap to gap guy? You know, is he a power guy? Is he just a guy that's going to go for the base hit? So I, I had to then understand and do it myself because my manager, Gene Mock, uh, he was, he was, he was a tough guy, a great manager, but he expected a lot. And he would say to me, if anything goes wrong in the outfield, it's your fault because you have priority over everyone. You are the guy that's in control. You move guys around out there. And so I had to to learn by just watching the hitters and pitchers uh, as opposed to the video like we can do today. Hey, Gary, it seems like when people look back, 1986 was one of the most memorable postseasons ever, National League and American League, which you played in the ALCS. You were with the California Angels. You were playing against the Boston Red Sox. Uh, you had an unbelievable series there. You hit 346 with a 414 on base percentage hit a homer. What do you remember most about that series against Boston? You know, that was uh, a very fun and exciting time. Uh, we felt like we had a team that could go to the World Series, uh, and we felt like we were on our way. We were playing well. Um, it was a, a series that which, you know, when you look back on it, we we, we really feel like we should have won, but uh, – the game isn't an over isn't over until the last out is recorded. Um, so we played well at home. Uh, we went to Boston. I think we started out in Boston. We we split there. We came back home and we had a three game to one lead. I did. I, I played fairly well in that series. Um, fun and exciting time. I remember hitting a home run, which was something that <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's hard to to explain the feeling of 
you know, here you are, you're in the playoffs, and this is uh, a game that pretty much everyone's watching and to, to, to perform well. It's, it's what everybody wants to do anyway. And then you get there and you actually do it. It, it just, you know, it, it solidifies the, the, the work that you've put in. Uh, and so we had a three game to one lead and we felt like this was, this was it. And that, that Sunday afternoon game, as uh, most people can remember, it was just one that was back and forth. It was extremely hot and uh, we had the lead. Mike Witt was pitching. We brought in a relief pitcher uh, who then hit Rich Getman, I believe it was, with the first pitch. And that's kind of set the stage for the ball rolling the opposite direction. Uh, home run by, I think it was Don Baylor, and then a home run by Dave Henderson. And the, the rest is history. <laughs> I mean, it's just, man, so frustrating. But then again, we still had an opportunity because we came up with the bases loaded, I think, in the in the bottom of that inning. And we just couldn't seem to scratch a run across. And then we go back to Boston and they win. They win two games. And so our three to one lead became a four to four games to three loss in a championship series. Can you draw any parallels between uh, that series and last year's World Series when you guys came back to Minute Maid Park with a 3-2 lead in the World Series? You know, only the only similarities would be the fact that, we, you know, we, we lost those games. Uh, because in those games, if I remember correctly, we had the lead in both games. And so we, we, we put ourselves in a position to win. Unfortunately, uh, we have that that bad taste in our mouth because we, we didn't pull it off. But, uh, and then again, that was a series where I guess the home team, the home team, I mean, the road team won every game. So uh, that in itself is something that I don't know if we'll ever see again, but yeah, the only similarities I think would be that uh, we lost the, the last two games that uh, we lost at home, but in 86, we lost them on the road. So 86 was the only time you got to the postseason as a player. Uh, you've yes. been there several times as a coach uh, with the Astros, of course, and also with the Rangers. You were there when they went to to back-to-back -back World Series. What is the feeling like? Is it is it how different is it being in the postseason as a as a coach compared to to being a, a, in the postseason as a player? Well, it's 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 different because as a player, you know, you're you're out there participating each inning and uh, you have an opportunity to do something uh, offensively, defensively, or, or on the bases. Um, as a coach, uh, you know that you have to make a decision that uh, can either score a run or have a runner thrown out. And so it's a, it's a big responsibility uh, even then as a coach, but I think it's, it's more uh, of a of a challenge as a player because as a coach I can sit there at third base and if nothing's going on well you know I'm just standing over there but as a player you're involved each inning you know a play has to be made it's upon you to make it so there are the differences but it's still an exciting time uh, but I, I'd, I'd give anything to play in the World Series <laughs> that's for sure that that to me would be like the 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 highlight of of anyone's baseball career is playing in a World Series. Yeah, without without a doubt. Um, so you've been with the Astros since since 2015. When AJ Hentry came manager, he hired you to be third base coach and outfield coach. The role you're 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 still in with the with the Astros. How did that all How did that all come about? Did you and AJ have a, a relationship before that? We didn't have a relationship. Uh, but, you know, I obviously, you know, as a baseball player and a baseball fan, um, I knew of A.J. when he was coming through. Um, and A.J. and Ron Washington knew one another. And so I believe A.J. reached out to to Ron and Ron, you know, told him about my work and how I handle things. And um, I got a call from A.J. and uh was asked to come and speak with him and come to Houston. And um, it got to the point where uh, the Rangers were uh, bringing in a new manager and 
I guess they were going to allow him to to pick his own staff. And so when uh, the Astros called and asked for permission to to speak with me and the Rangers granted them permission, I guess I, I saw the, the handwriting on the wall because it would just appear that if a team wants you back, they wouldn't give another team permission to to talk to you. So I took the opportunity and I'm, I'm glad and happy that I did. It worked out. Uh, I've had a great time in Houston, met some great people, some great uh, teammates and coaches. And so it's been it's been a lot of fun uh, to come to, to the ballpark and work with the guys that we have. Gary, what's your opinion on, on today's game? I think we can all agree that everybody's bigger, stronger and faster and probably more talented. Do you like today's game or would you like uh, to, to see it change a little bit? Well, I'd like to play in today's game. That's for yeah. sure. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of glue <laughs> out there. A, I mean, the way that the game is now, I mean, you know, certain guys just have certain skill sets. I mean, obviously, you know, you have the guys that can hit the home runs and, you know, the, the high batting averages. You know, you have guys that are pretty good fielders, throwers, you know, you so you, you have it all. And I, I just think that you know, the, the stolen base part of the game is, has been missing for quite some time, which is, you know, something that I, I took a lot of, a lot of pride in doing, uh, was stealing bases. And I think that, uh, today's game would be something that would be, uh, certainly a, a challenge for me that I would welcome. You know, you talk about the, uh, the stolen base and, you know, you had 354 steals in your career, Gary, you never led the American League in steals. You had a stretch where three out of four years in the 80s, you finished second. And I believe each time you finished second to, to your old uh, your old uh, Connie oh, yeah. Mack teammate, Ricky Henderson. Uh, was there was there a little bit of a of a friendly rivalry there between you two in terms of the, the stolen bases and, and all of that? Of course, Ricky, you know, the greatest base stealer of all time. Well, obviously, you know, growing up with those guys, we used to talk a lot of trash when we were kids and it, it didn't stop. Uh, the one thing that I will say is that uh, Ricky Henderson was and is the best base stealer of all time. Uh, so coming in second to a guy like that, you know, I don't feel bad about that at all. Uh, I, I did play on teams where, you know, I didn't have the green light. Uh, I wished I had them. Uh, I wouldn't have stole a hundred bases. That, that's no, I don't think I would have done that, but I do think I could have stolen more than the 50 or so that I did per year. Uh, I, I think I could have increased those numbers, but uh, I, I was taught how to play the game uh, a certain way, and, and uh, that's what I did. Uh, but, you know, yeah, would I have loved the opportunity to just get out there and just try to run whenever I felt like I wanted to unless they gave me the stop sign? Oh, man, I just can only imagine how that would have felt. You uh, obviously you know, the two things you're known most for in your career were the stolen bases and also your, your defense, you know, five-time Gold Glover. You won your first Gold Glove in 1985 with the Angels, which was your second full season uh, in in the big leagues. That year, did you have an idea that, that this was a possibility? Were you was were you surprised at all when when the the awards got announced at, at, after the season was over that, that you had won the Gold Glove? I'll be honest with you, I was surprised that I didn't win in 1984 <laughs> 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 because I felt like. I, I played as good or better than than any center fielder that year, but I was a rookie, and I lost out to the to the old guys. I believe it was uh, Dwayne Murphy, Dave Winfield, and Dwight Evans. Okay. I think those were the guys that I lost to. Came in fourth, uh, so they say. <laughs> and then I think the next year, um, if my memory serves me correct. Uh, they gave they gave out four that year, and it may be the only time that they've ever done that I, because they said that there was a tie, I think, between me and someone else. It was one of those three guys again, so it, they gave four. I think it was myself, again, Dwight Evans, Dwayne Murphy, and Dave Winfield, I think. So I think that may have been the only year that they gave out four awards. Jerry, maybe you got penalized because they didn't recognize you from your baseball card. Do you remember that story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that was my brother. Uh, at the time, he was uh, 14 years old. And I had a teammate, Juan Beniquez. His son would come to the games. And so my nephew, I mean, excuse me, my brother would sometimes come on the weekends. And so when they were both together in town, we'd take them out and let them run out on the field. And they put on the uniforms. And at 14, my brother was just as big or not, if not bigger than I was. Uh, and so they're out on the field running around and I don't know how it happened, but a photographer, <laughs> again, I have no idea how this happened. You know, how photographer, happened. <laughs> <a> photographer <laughs> took, took his picture. <laughs> and, uh, later on, uh, that off season, one of my friends called me and says, Hey, he says, you know, you, you look really young on your picture. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I am young. I'm, I'm 24. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I didn't think anything of it. And then later on, someone came up to me with the cards. Hey, can you sign this your baseball card? And I looked at it. I went, oh, my gosh. That's now hilarious. I see what they're talking about. It was my brother, Lynn. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, good for him. I'm sure he got a big kick out of it. Oh yeah, he he got a, he got to uh, have his picture and a little article in in the uh, ESPN. I mean, uh, the the newspaper. Yeah, so it was just yeah. like, oh my gosh. Hey Gary, he, let's talk he, he about your kids. Let's talk about your kids. You've got some very accomplished kids: Kyler, Dante, Paige, and Shay. Let's talk about them for a little bit. Start with Kyler. So Kyler, um, you know, once he got out of high school, he. Uh, decided that he was going to go into acting, which, you know, he was in some of the plays in middle school and stuff like that. And he wanted to pursue that career. And so he went to a community college, took some courses there. And then we found a, an acting school for him down in Los Angeles. Uh, he would make the trip. We live in San Clemente. So it's about an hour and a 10 minute drive. Uh, he would commute. He would go to classes down there. Uh, go on audition. Sometimes uh, he would leave six o'clock in the morning um, and he wouldn't get back until maybe six o'clock in the evening. Um, and so it was, it was long days. And he did this for, oh, maybe say a year or so where he just constantly was out there trying to, to land a, a spot somewhere. And he went on so many auditions. And I told him that, you know, there'll be a lot of times that uh, you're going to be told no, and it's probably going to be 80, 90% of the time it's, it's going to happen, but don't let that discourage you. This is just the business that you're in or trying to get into. Uh, and lo and behold, he was at an audition and he didn't get the, the, the job, but I believe on his way out, someone saw him and walked up to him and said, Hey, you know, we'd like for you to come audition for this, uh, spot right here. And, he goes and he ends up getting the, the, the job, which turned out to be uh, on the days of he, on the days of our life soap opera. He played a young um, autistic kid, uh, which uh, to me was pretty outstanding for him to be able to transform into to that role. In fact, uh, would get calls all the time about how well he did. And then not only would we get calls about it, but he would actually get calls from people who had autistic children and they were thanking him for portraying uh, the autistic person that he did so well. Uh, and they just wanted to let him know that he did such a good job. And uh, it all culminated uh, with, we were in, we were in Mexico. Remember, we were playing the Angels in the Mexico series. And the Daytime Emmy Awards were happening that Sunday afternoon. And I knew that he was invited. And he, along with the rest of uh, my family, were down there. And the game ends. I'm sitting on the bus. <clears throat> and my phone rings. They told me they would FaceTime me. Um, and so now I'm sitting there with this with my phone at it, and they're talking about all of the different actors that are nominated for this Emmy. And I mean, there's a bit of a silence. You know, you get the drum roll, and the the MC goes, and the winner is Kyler Pettis. 
I let out the loudest scream. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> on the on the bus that you could ever imagine. I was just I was in the in the aisle jumping up and down on the bus. So it was just wow. a, a a great time and just you know, it just shows that what you know, even when the odds are against you, something good can happen. Phenomenal. All right, tell us about Dante. I, you've oh you've my. been his so, ardent supporter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so Dante, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, he was the guy that wanted to play all of the sports. There wasn't a sport that he didn't play, whether it was tennis, football, baseball, basketball, soccer. And not just him, but all of the kids did it, but it just seemed like Dante was the one that wanted to just do it no matter what. So he goes to high school, starts playing all the different sports, uh, played baseball uh, his freshman year, maybe a little bit of his sophomore year, and then decided that he didn't want to do it anymore because it was becoming uh, a little bit more difficult because of all the other sports he was playing, basketball, football, uh, running track, it was eating up a lot of time. And so he was always a little bit behind the rest of the guys and in, in baseball. So he didn't do it anymore and just focused on the other, the other three, uh, played so well in high school that, uh, he had schools that were offering him scholarships to come play football. Um, initially he was scheduled to go to Boise state, which is where, my nephew, his cousin, Austin Pettis, uh, performed and, and did very well when he also uh, ended up getting drafted by the uh, St. Louis Rams and had a four or five year career in the NFL. Uh, so Dante was going to go to Boise. The coach at Boise uh, ended up leaving Boise and he went to the University of Washington, which uh, Dante was all set to go to Boise. But when coach goes to Washington, now Dante switches and now he ends up at Washington as well. So he's at the University of Washington and uh, my gosh, what a what a, a fun time that was. I know it had to be fun for him because I, I just, I mean, it was so much fun for me and, and for, for our family, just watching the things that were, that were taking place. Uh, you know, it got to the point where they played so well that they ended up playing they played Alabama in in the one of the semifinal games. They they lost twenty four to seven, but uh, he caught the first touchdown pass of the game. Which uh, man, I, I I lost my voice. I couldn't talk for a uh, day or he so. Had a great career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so so now that was his junior year. Now he comes back as a senior, and uh, things started really happening. Uh, he starts to exhibit a knack for returning punts and it almost seems like it started to happen on a on a weekly basis uh, the record was was eight punt returns in a career and that's that was the NCAA record and I think that maybe the first three or four games he returned a punt for a touchdown and now he's at seven and then about i don't know a week or so or two later he he does it again and so now he's he's got the pac-12 record which was seven he's got the pac-12 record he's got eight and the ncaa record is nine so they have i don't know maybe three or four games uh left maybe five games left and he doesn't do anything for those next three or four games and I fly up, our, our season's over, our season's over. I get up there, fly, fly into uh, Washington, go to the game. And I get there and I sit down and the other team has the ball. Oregon has the ball first and they go three and out. And now they're about to punt the ball to Washington and I'm, not paying attention. I'm talking. And finally I hear the guy over the PA system goes, Dante Pettis back to return. And now I grab my phone because everybody is thinking that this could be the moment that it happens. 
grab my phone and I start video videotaping this this moment. And sure enough, he catches this ball, breaks a few tackles, runs away from a few guys, and he runs it back for a touchdown. As waited like, for you. He waited yes, for daddy. Unbelievable. <laughs> and I have to I'll have to show you guys the video because it was okay until he got to about the, the 10 yard line or so. And then I don't know where the phone ended up, but I have some video of something. I don't know what. <laughs> and all you <laughs> can hear me. Yeah, you could just hear me just screaming and just, uh, just going crazy. So cool. That's great. That's great. Um, I want to ask you about your daughters. But before we do that, I did want to ask you about, um, you know, you mentioned Dante. You got drafted by the, the 49ers. Uh, last year, his second year with them, uh, he, he was on a 49ers team that made it all the way to the Super Bowl. Didn't end yes. up the way you guys would have liked, but uh, Super Bowl was in Miami. You you were there, right? What was that experience like? Yeah, well, you know, it was kind of kind of bittersweet because um, they made him inactive the night before the game, so I wasn't too happy about that. Matter of fact, none of us were. He wasn't, and, and so, um, you know, sometimes sports can be – uh, a ton of uh, memories and fun times, and sometimes they can be a memory of something bad happening as well. And so uh, that was a, a time that uh, we really wished wouldn't have happened. Uh, but I told him it's not an indication on you and how you can play because, you know, the things that you have done in football, it's it's on film. All you have to do is go look at it. If you pull it up, if you go look at Dante Pettis, you'll see some things that uh, will let you know that this guy is a, is a really good football player. But, you know, overall, the, the, the accommodations and everything in, in, in Miami for the Super Bowl, the, the food, the, the atmosphere, uh, it, was, it, was, it was that part of it was fun. Uh, just the, the notion, uh, the idea that, that he, didn't, uh, he wasn't able to go out there and perform, just that didn't sit well with me. Tell us about your uh, your daughters, Paige and Shay. You always get asked about your sons, the actor and the yeah. football player. But, yeah. but, but tell us about Paige and Shay. What, what are they up to? So Paige uh, graduated from the University of Arizona, uh, a journalist major. Um, and so she's been just kind of working and just following uh, the rest of the family around uh um, really, really, really proud of, of her and the, the young lady that she's become and the things that she's been doing. So I'm, I'm excited to just be around her. Obviously, you know, I'm home for the all of the wrong reasons right now, but it's still fun to 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 reconnect and, and spend some time with uh, with them all. Um, and then my youngest daughter, Shay, uh, she just graduated high school last year. She uh, is a freshman at Baylor University. Um, she maybe wasn't quite the sports person that the other three were, but she made up for it with, with her smarts. <laughs> she is into the, uh, the nursing at Baylor, um, and so I'm really happy to, to see uh, what she has gone on to, to try to accomplish and what she will become. Uh, I'm just just happy to to see that she is on a trail that will enable her to help people, which is what she's she's always always done. She's always known from a, a, a early age that uh, she wanted to she wanted to be a nurse and she wanted to help babies especially. Awesome, man! You and your wife uh, have done a great job, Gary. Hey, is is dire? Is uh, maybe some of the the writers. Uh, make these labor disputes out to be. I remain pretty optimistic, Gary, and you, you've been through more of these than I have. But a lot of this rhetoric we hear between the two sides sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can remember the days. Uh, being a former player rep, I can kind of look at what's going on and, and see that uh, there's some, some challenges ahead and hopefully – uh, cooler heads will prevail and maybe we can get back to doing what everybody wants to do and what they do best, um, especially, you know, bringing joy to, to people and also just being able to, to 
play a game that that we so love. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, Gary Pettis, thank you so much for joining us. Always so many great stories. Always good to hear from you. All right. Thank you, guys. Good to hear from thanks, you. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. Thanks. All right. Always great to hear from from Gary Pettis. And, and Steve, you know, one of the things I, I love and one of the things I'm missing right now about there not being a season, or at least the season not starting yet, uh, is the fact that, you know, there'd be times when uh, maybe before batting practice or whatever, I would be in the dugout, whether it was in Houston or on the road, and I'd see Gary Pettis there, you know, smoking his cigar, uh, <laughs> unwinding before before batting practice and all the activities started. And, you know, we sometimes we just sometimes he'd be on his phone or, you know, we just we really wouldn't say much to each other. But there'd be other days when we would sit there and, you know, Gary would just tell me stories and, you know, some like some of the stories that we heard on this podcast. And I mean, as, as I think everybody got to hear, I mean, just so many stories and, and such a good storyteller. Yeah, I, I relish those opportunities. Uh, uh, we get the the one on one conversations with the people on the coaching staff, and Gary's my favorite in that regard. Talking about growing up as he just did with uh, Ricky Henderson and Dave Stewart and Lloyd Mosby and those guys, and it's remarkable to me to think that those guys grew up together and played together and remained close friends. Uh, but like you said, he's got great stories, great perspective. He, he's done everything you could think of. Uh, uh, in his baseball career, uh, at 62 years old, he, he looks like he's about 40 years old. And uh, him and his wife have done a heck of a job with four kids, haven't they? They certainly have. They certainly have. And I'm convinced, you talk about how good Gary Pettis looks for his age. I'm convinced Gary thinks that he could still play. <laughs> well, have you, have you seen him go from the dugout to the, the coach's box? Uh, I, I don't think... Uh, he has those qualms anymore because he's had a couple of uh, knee surgeries in the last two years yeah. that slowed him down. But man, what a what a great outfielder! I, I remember yes. thinking back uh, when Nolan Ryan was twirling with the Texas Rangers and Gary Pettis was roaming and with the California Angels, just how much ground he covered and how graceful uh, he made catches at the at the fence look. Uh, he was one of the best that uh, we've seen in a long time. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. All right, Steve, you you and your family stay safe over there, all right? You too. See you soon. All right. We'll, we'll see you next time. See you later.